Welcome, everybody, to Crystal Kylan, friends. This is not Breaking Points, even though we are on the Breaking Points set. So just to give everybody a little bit of a background as to why this is going down, we interviewed Jesse Ventura earlier in the week. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, you know, I just came into the Breaking Point studio so we could do our intro. We waited until the day we normally record yes. to do our intro. We should mention, too, about that. We uh, interviewed Jesse before the FBI raid on oh. Trump happened, which right. is important um, because we do talk about Trump in uh, in the interview. But I think everything he says holds up very well and actually is very important, ends up being very important because he talks about Trump as like a, a professional wrestling villain and sort of some of the insights he has into the character that he's playing that I think are even more relevant given some of the events of this week. Yeah, I think you guys are going to like the interview, so hold tight for that. But yeah. before we throw... a few curveballs, too. <laughs> true, very true. <laughs> uh, before we get to that, though, I wanted to talk about um, this Media Matters article that was up, and uh, there's a transcript as well of a show that Hannity did. Guys, go ahead and throw that up there on the screen so I can read it here. Sean Hannity announces... He no longer loves law enforcement. Mm -hmm. So, um, Crystal, let me throw it to you now. Give me, I, I, this is the first time, I haven't seen the specifics of this yet, guys. So Crystal's going to read me the transcript and I'm going to react in real time because this is something we've seen a lot of, you know, hypocrisy or allegations of hypocrisy on the issue of law enforcement and what's happening with this Trump raid in terms of the left and the right. But go ahead. Yes. And read okay. The so here is what Hannity says specifically, quote, the FBI is blatantly targeting our fellow Americans for their political beliefs. The Bureau's reputation has been shattered. My faith in an organization, I'll be honest, I had two family members. They were a deity in my family because they worked for this organization. I revered this organization for decades of my life. Embarrassing. If you listen to my radio show, watch this show, you know my love of law enforcement. It has now pretty much utterly been destroyed. That's what he says. So they, okay, I, when I first read the headline, I was like, look, sometimes media matters is a little bit. No, they very accurately portray. Yeah, like I think sometimes <laughs> they spin it a little bit or overstate it a little bit. Yeah. But then as you read that, it's like, no, they, he literally said that. He literally says, you know my love of law enforcement. It has now been pretty much utterly destroyed. So not just FBI, law enforcement overall. I, no longer is back in the blue. Okay, where do we even begin with this? So Marjorie Taylor Greene also came out and tweeted, Defund the FBI. Def yes, yes. There's been like a number of, of these Candace going on. Candace Owens came yeah. out with the take too. There were others. So, and, and look, the, the obvious point to make, which it's amazing that this goes over anybody's head, but this is sheer rank partisanship tribalism. This has nothing to do with some sort of principled stance. Uh, you about don't think these are new allies? <laughs> reforming law enforcement. <laughs> yeah, that's why. That's our comrade Sean here. But it's funny because I do see some people <laughs> making that argument. Yeah. As if, like, they really mean it or they really— No, okay, what they mean is use law enforcement to go after everybody I don't like and everybody I do like hands off. It reminds me very much— I mean, you can see the hypo hypocrisy directly in their stances on law enforcement already because you saw, you know, they stood by and watched uh, federal agents violently clear that park, Lafayette Square, by the White House in order for Trump to do his thing. Cool with that. And then, you know, when it came to January 6th, then they're on the other side and they're like on the side of the people who were brawling with law enforcement. Right, so already, yeah. I mean, there already was tons of hypocrisy out there. Now they've gone aggressively a step further to outright say defund the police. I saw someone say like shatter it into a hundred bits or something like that. 
it's very similar to the way they've approached their stance on free, their principled stance on free speech, where they're happy to say, oh, we're against censorship and we're pro-free speech. At the same time, they're passing laws to ban protests, banning books, and setting up platforms, new social media platforms that still have censorship on it. It's just the censorship that they wanted to have. So reports that right. on Truth Social, for example, you can't talk about January 6th from a Democratic perspective. Um, Mike Lindell, when he was setting up his free speech platform, remember, he was like, but no profanity and no taking the Lord's name in vain, et cetera, et cetera. So they uh, want law enforcement to only serve their ends. It's not that they actually want to curtail the police state. They just want the police state to serve them. And let me say also that there are allegations of hypocrisy on the left as well, because people on the left were generally cheering this on. I 1 million percent disagree. There is no hypocrisy on the left over this issue. Why? Well, there's a number of reasons. Number one, the like defund the FBI is not something I've ever really heard the left argue for. I mean, sure, there are some lefties who want to totally abolish the FBI or whatever. But to me, that argument is like saying, if somebody supports defund the police, they can't be happy that Harvey Weinstein was arrested by the police. Like, yeah. obviously, it's a case-by-case -case basis type thing. And, like, I don't see any way around that. The FBI was responsible for taking down the KKK. They had, uh, you know, informants in, in the KKK, and they blew the whistle that they were tied to local law enforcement. That's something the FBI did. They took down the mafia. They took down uh, Al Capone. Like, so I, I've, I've never made the argument uh, defund the police. I've never made the argument defund the FBI because my whole take on it has always been you got to go on a case-by-case -case basis. If they're upholding the law in a way that's reasonable, that's based. And the anti-establishment and anti-elitist position should be, oh, thank God, finally, one of the, like a former president is actually being investigated for some wrongdoing. That's a good thing. Not, I hate it when people make the argument, yeah, but all the other presidents should be uh, investigated too. It's like, yes, I agree with that, but don't use that to object to Trump being investigated. Right. Use that to say, that's what's up. We agree. We finally got one. Now right. maybe we can go after the others. Yeah, you you can't be like, well, they didn't go over the, after these other pedophiles, so why are they persecuting Jeffrey Epstein? It's like, right, no, yeah, yeah. yeah, you know, it's good they're going after Epstein. They should, yes, they should have gone after the other ones as well, but the fact that they went after Epstein, yeah, I mean, also, the lefty position is not that there should be no laws and there should be no law enforcement. To your point, one of the critiques is that there is a two-tier system of justice that the FBI and oftentimes local police as well go after uh, the poor disproportionately and who are disproportionately black and brown. That's the problem. So when you see, oh my God, in this one instance, they actually don't have a two-tier system of justice. They actually are going after an elite and still not the way that they would go after you and me if we had random classified documents that we were hiding and lying about, but they're going after him. That's something to say, hey, in this instance, they're actually, you know, upholding the law in a, what seems to be based on the facts we know, a fair and neutral way. And if other facts come out after the fact, we can uh, look at that. But based on everything we know at this point, I mean, who doesn't really believe that Trump had a bunch of classified shit he wasn't supposed to have and he was lying about it? That's very easy to be to believe. Yeah, and it's one of many crimes. And like I said, if you got Al Capone on tax evasion, I'm fine with them getting Trump on fucking anything they can get him on. And also, when the FBI was investigating Hillary Clinton, myself and all of my allies on the left are all like, that's what's up. <laughs> they were like, okay, good. Like, I hope yeah. you find something. That'd be awesome. In that way, I feel like in this particular instance, the left is almost the only 
sphere that has been consistent because they were like, okay, I'm fine with Hillary Clinton being held to a standard, being investigated for, you know, wrongdoing that she committed. And I'm also fine over here when it applies to Trump. Whereas with the right, you know, they were all gung-ho about like classified document handling is the most egregious crime that could possibly be. Trump famously ends up signing into law, making this document handling thing a felony. Um, so he's being sort of like held to the own standard that he himself set. And now when it's Trump, they're like, this is no big deal and this is so minimal and who really cares? So there's just, there's very rank and clear hypocrisy um, there. And then yeah, I mean, and the liberals are the exact opposite. When it was Hillary, it was like, oh, this is no big deal. Why are they going after her? And this is ridiculous. And we shouldn't be looking at this at all. And now that it's Trump, they're all about it. I saw a great meme that was um, Trump. FBI is investigating Hillary, proving she's corrupt. Fast forward a few years later. FBI is investigating me, proving they're corrupt. Yeah. It's like just, you know, well, flip kinda, it. Do the mental like gymnastics. The, I mean, it's kind of like the election conspiracy stuff, right? It's like, if they don't get the election result they want, then it's rigged. If they do get the election result they want, then it's free and fair. Yeah. It's all good. It all, just, just all depends. Although, to be fair, Carrie Lake, did yeah. you see this? the thing that she said? She had won the election, yeah. but she had already been leaning into it's a rigged election. Yeah. And so it's just like, wait, okay, if it's rigged and you won, are you saying the other person won? Like, what are you doing here? That's funny. Don't yeah. miss that. I yeah. saw she came out before the result was clear. And yeah, like she did the poll. She pulled kind of a Pete Buttigieg there, and that's a George say. W. Declared, Bush too. Declared that's very the true. Fox News. Fox News did that in two thousand. Very true. Yeah. yeah, very true. I mean, they you know successfully did the coup. Back yeah, back in two thousand, they Indeed. had their shit together. They they were able to competently execute the coup back then. Yes, yes, they were, <laughs> and it was quiet too. You know, everybody sort of went along with it. They're, they're probably looking at Trump like amateur. Yeah, totally. And now we got idiot. Dick Cheney out here lecturing us about democracy, upholding democracy. Man, that video was wild. Uh, Oh, that video is so wild. It's like, how do you say those things with a straight face? This is the worst thing about Trump is that he makes everything in our politics just like the dividing line is just him. Where do you stand on the issue of Donald Trump himself? And that makes everybody's brains just like melt down so that you have, you know, liberals like, oh, that Dick Cheney guy. Really like that. I forgot about how great he is, you know, yeah. rehabbing George W. Bush. And, you know, obviously on the right, they, they don't stand for anything other than like, whatever Trump says, I'm going to back it. Doesn't yeah. matter what mm -hmm. it is. Doesn't matter how ridiculous. In fact, the more ridiculous it is, the more that it proves my loyalty to him and that I am a like, you know, soldier in good standing that I'm willing to go along with the most ridiculous things. And so, it creates the dumbest possible dividing line in American politics. It's not about policy or issues at all. So uh, I'll, I'll wrap up with this. I want to ask you this question. Okay. How long until Hannity does a total about face oh. and pretends like he never said this? Is it, it like the next time a cop shoots an unarmed black person or the next time the FBI investigates? Like we heard the FBI raided some like black socialist headquarters thing yeah. because they're claiming they're like tied to Russia or some shit. It's and it's like... Well, hold on. See, this is the problem with his absolutism and his black and white world is yeah. that he didn't even leave himself room to be like, well, sometimes I agree with them and I agree with this thing, but I don't agree with this thing. He was just like, now I'm turned on law enforcement. They you know? raided, they violently raided the property of the African People's Socialist Party. Haven't heard uh, Mr. Hannity or our new comrades, Candace Owens and Marjorie Taylor Greene speaking out about that uh, that particular hey, FBI action. Look, I, he says he's against law enforcement now, so I'm going to guess he's against that. He's, he's, he's taken down his like thin blue line. Yeah, he's for and, 
You know, he's in solidarity with black socialists. That's what <laughs> Hannity's doing. <laughs> sure. I just no. I seriously can't wait until the next time because he's going to do an about oh, face it's, like that. It's, it's going to be, be so quick. I mean, yeah. This is what he it, does. This is what he could does. It literally be today. It, yeah, and he would it act like he, he would act like he never said the shit he j- literally just said. It's a, it is amazing to me that they feel no need to like no consistency, no logic, go back and nope. clean it up. And say, I know I said this yesterday, but today, you know, I came. No, they just are willing. I told you completely flip on a, on a dime. Doesn't matter whatsoever. My favorite Hannity moment has always been the NSA moment, where it was Media Matters who spliced together everything he said under George mm-hmm. W. Bush and everything he said under yeah. Obama under George W. Bush. If you are against. NSA spying, you are with the terrorists. You don't believe in safety. You don't believe in security. You're failing at the most basic thing that a government should do. You need to support this. It's obvious. And then as soon as Obama got in power and kept that same program going, it was, this is against our Fourth Amendment protection from unreasonable search and seizure, and you're violating my constitutional rights, and this is fucking terrible. That's what it is. So blatant. Listen, everybody... Look, we all have our flaws. We Wrong. all have our limits Wrong, I have to none. the way we perceive. Everybody's going to be caught being hypocritical at some point. But the level of... Does this guy have flaws? Come on. <laughs> Not in my opinion. <laughs> the level of just blatant, like... I look like a racist one, cop. One day I'm here and the next day... I do. I look like a racist I don't cop. I think they wear, like, those are, like, kind of pink and rainbowy though. Yeah, but the shape. The shape is the racist shape copy. Is, yeah, definitely. But the... Yeah. The... the, um, the Rainbow nature of them says, like, gay ally, you know? You think so? Yeah. I feel like it looks like I raided that black socialist organization. <laughs> that's for real. And I got the thing in, the earpiece. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's true. I could buy it. Um, anyway, yeah, I well, cut you, you know, off. Those Russian, those Russian influence campaigns, you gotta, you gotta crack <laughs> down on those. That's, sorry for cutting you off. That's the problem in the country. I don't remember what I was saying. So yeah. we can just go that's to the That's my interview. fault, guys. Because that's I am fault. excited <laughs> about the interview. Um, former governor of Minnesota, um, you know, former professional wrestler, Jesse the Body o- Ventura. Former Navy SEAL. Former Navy. I mean, this guy. And we get into some of his background, too. Like, oh, yeah. What has he not done? It's kind of incredible. And he's now, you know, he thought about running uh, for president last time around on the Green Party ticket. We'll talk to him a little bit about that. He, I just listened to him on an interview with Andrew Yang, thinking about running on the Ford Party ticket. We'll ask him about that as well. So there's a lot to get into with him. So let's get right to it. All right. Welcome to the wonderful Jesse Ventura. Thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Great to be here. I enjoy doing podcasts today. I'm doing more than I ever have in my whole life because as I told you all off camera, I'm computer illiterate and I've never owned a (laughs) cell phone. I love that. There's something That's incredible. There's something charming about that that I definitely like. Um, and pure. There's something pure is the right word for that. Um, so let's start here, Jesse. I want to go all the way back. So you served in the U.S. Navy underwater demolition team, which is now part of the Navy SEALs. Um, well, no, the Navy SEALs are part of the Navy underwater demolition okay. teams. Gotcha. So I flipped well, it there. Let me back you up. Sure. The, 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 the underwater demolition teams came first. They came out of World War II. And that happened because the Marines, I forget what island it was, but the Marines were doing one of them big Marine landings in World War II where they all run off the boat and charge the beach. I'm sure you've seen film of it. Oh, yeah. Well, what happened was they didn't know there was a sandbar. And the boats ran aground when they dropped the front and all the Marines ran off. Literally a thousand of them drowned. Oh, my God. Because they ran off into 12 to 14 feet of water and they're all laden down with all their equipment. They never even made it ashore. 
they drowned on the beaches. So what happened was they realized, wait a minute, we've got to have people to recon, do reconnaissance of these beaches before the Marines land. And that's where the famous underwater demolition teams were formed. You may have seen the great movie, which inspired many of my generation, Richard Whitmark in The Frogman. Mm. If you ever get a chance to see it, it's an old movie on TV starring Richard Widmark. And they'll cover the whole uh, history of the underwater demolition teams. Now, moving forward, we were the UDTs until, and still were, all the way through Vietnam. But in 1962, President Kennedy realized we were going to need small unit guerrilla warfare. That was going to be what would be required in wars in the future. So President Kennedy, being former Navy, he went to the Navy and basically signed an executive order, which took the UDT, underwater demolition teams, by by order. We could not go past the high water mark. Mm. That was the Marines. John F. Mm. Kennedy signed an executive order that said the UDTs can now go past the high water mark and created the Navy SEALs, which stands for Sea, Air, Land, which means mm. we come at you from the sea, we come at you from the air, or we'll come at you from the land. You're never safe from us. That That's a fascinating backstory that I never knew of. Um, well, anyway, and so then the UDT, then it became the UDT SEALs. And it was shortened for training called BUDS, Basic Underwater Demolition SEAL Training. And I'm class 58. I went through uh, June 22nd. I started 1970, graduated in uh, November of 70. I went to three weeks of jump school at Fort Benning, Georgia for the Army to become a paratrooper, finished that. Went to SEER school for a week, which is survival, escape, resistance, evasion, where I was waterboarded. So I know that waterboarding is torture. I speak from experience. Uh, then I went to what they called SEAL cadre, advanced guerrilla warfare in Nyland, California, in the desert, where for seven weeks, all you do is run operations day and night, and you shoot every weapon known to man, every handheld weapon man ha we have in in the military. I graduated from there on Wednesday. They said, be at Naval Air Station, North Island. Monday morning, you deploy to Southeast Asia. You'll be there for nine months. Wow. That's... So I deployed for, to Southeast Asia, was successful in my deployment, returned home. And then I faced the most traumatic thing in my life that has stuck with me forever. And that is this. When I returned home, I had been home for one week and I walked into my executive officer and I said, sir, I want to go back to Vietnam. I want to go back to Southeast Asia right now, right now. And he looked at me and he said, you can't do that. You just rotated home. Navy requirements state you have to spend at least six months stateside before you can go back to the combat zone again. And he said to me, what's the problem? Why? What do you want to go back for right now? And I said, here's why, sir. I said, I can't go up on Orange Avenue and buy a beer. I can't even vote for the person who sent me to Vietnam. I said, here in this country, I am considered a child. I said, sir, 
I'm not a child anymore after nine months over there. And if people here believe I'm a child, they're wrong. And I said, I want to go back to where I'm treated like an adult. Hmm. And was we it... still, and we still see, I was still, I wasn't 21. I was 20 years right. old. Yeah. I couldn't drink. I couldn't, I couldn't vote. I wasn't granted any privileges of adulthood. And yet they'd send me to war. That is Isn't quite that a child abuse. Yeah, that is quite a contradiction. Almost worst form. Yeah. So and, let me ask and, you: Did did that make you anti? Was it your experience in Vietnam that made you anti-war, or did that come later in life? Both. Mm. Both. Uh, it, it. Well, I'll back up. When I was going through high school, my mom and dad were both World War II veterans. Not many people can say that. My mom was a nurse in North Africa, which predated Normandy. She was fighting Rommel on the deserts of Africa before the Normandy invasion. My mom, but she was a nurse, so she wasn't actually fighting. She was like in a mass unit in Africa. But, and my father had six bronze battle stars, World War II, North Africa, Normandy, Battle of the Bulge, Remagen Bridge, Anzio and Berlin and lived. And I remember coming home in high school and saying to my dad one day, we got to be in Vietnam, dad, to stop the domino effect of communism. And I'll never forget my dad looked at me, this six-starred World War II veteran, and he said to me, is that what they're teaching you in school? Hmm. And I said, yeah. And he, and, I, and he says to me, that's the biggest bunch of bullshit I've ever heard. Wow. <laughs> now, here I am hearing my dad telling me I'm being bullshitted by my teachers whom I greatly respect. I'm now caught in a dilemma here. What the hell is this? My dad's saying they're full of bullshit. And uh, so when it came time and I was 18 and I was going to enlist, uh, my dad didn't object to it, but he was opposed to the, my dad was opposed to the Vietnam War before the hippies were. Wow. And, uh, wow. and and this is a veteran because he had been there, done that. He knew. Mm. And uh, uh, not saying World War II was bad, but just looking at war as a whole. He knew and, what it was in a visceral way. And well, so when did your when did your opposition specifically to the Vietnam War well, start? Did you I, I believe in the mission after my while deployment. you were there? I came home after yeah. my deployment and I was lucky my dad's still alive. And I came up to him. I says, Dad. You were right. They were wrong. Mm -hmm. And my dad said, well, I always knew I was right. But he said, <laughs> sometimes you just got to learn the hard way. Sometimes if, you know, you got to learn it your own way. And that's what you had to do. And so it was at that point, I did do one more deployment. And then when I returned from that and I got out, I worked, I, I campaigned and, and protested and marched with the Stop the Draft movement because I saw the draft for what it was. Poor kids went to war, rich kids went to college and got national debt. Yeah. No, and that's what happened. If you were a rich kid in my day, oh, you went to college, you didn't have to worry about Vietnam. Donald Trump, yeah. he didn't worry about Vietnam. His daddy bought his way out of it. Yeah. You know, he didn't have to worry about it. But poor ki kids like me from the inner city, I grew up in South Minneapolis, I can name all my friends that ended up getting drafted and going to Vietnam. 
The only difference was I volunteered. Navy and was that the beginning? Well, the Navy's never drafted. The Navy has never drafted. The Navy has always reached their quota because usually when a war like that starts, many people, if there's a draft and they're going to face the Army or the Marines in a draft, they'll join the Navy. And the reason for that, the Navy will guarantee you three hots and a cot usually. <laughs> You'll wow. get three hot meals a day and a bed to sleep in. <laughs> Where in the Army and the Marines, you might be sleeping in the dirt. But what do I do? I join the biggest knuckle draggers there are, the SEALs. <laughs> but but our type of work, though, is different than the Army and the Marines. You know, we don't go out and hold an area. We don't go out and take something. We go out and hit designated targets, one-night deals. You know, our, we do specialty work. And so when you got involved in the, the Stop the Draft movement, is that the sort of beginning of your political involvement or were you politically involved? Yeah, I would that? say it was. Yeah. That was and the spark. Then, and then I also had to drag my wife out in the 70s to march with me for the Women's Equal Rights Amendment because my wife was all for it. And I said, well, if you're for it, get off your butt and get out there and let's show people you are. <laughs> because I'm a great believer in the First Amendment. Always will be. A peaceful First Amendment. Right. Yeah. You know, you know let's we, let's get that in there. Not the bullshit that happened January sixth. Right. Ain't the First right. Amendment. So we were just talking off air, Jesse, and we could I wanted to bring this up on air too. So you were for a while you were working for RT and then go ahead. Tell everybody the backstory and what happened with the Ukraine war and the response from the West. Tell everybody what happened. Well, I, maybe I should back up before that and tell you a more interesting story about when I got out of office. Sure. This is the second job I've lost because of a war. Hmm. This is the second one, not the first. The first job I lost was when I came out of office in 2003. I was the hottest commodity out there. I was the voice of the independent, right? Yep. Governor of Minnesota beat the Democrats and Republicans. Well, Fox, MSNBC, and CNN got in a bidding war for me. MSNBC won. I signed a three-year contract with them. I'm supposed to have Rachel Maddow's spot. That's supposed <laughs> to be Jesse Ventura's spot. Well, at the time, at the time, MSNBC was borderline kind of Fox light. They hadn't gone full liberal like they have now. And they had just signed Phil Donahue. Do you remember Phil from daytime television? Oh, yeah. Well, they had put Phil on and Phil was their top rated show because they were running third. You know, so they needed people. So they signed me. They signed Phil Donahue. Phil was on and was their top rated show. But here was the fly in the ointment. Phil Donahue did not agree with the invasion of Iraq. And neither did Jesse Ventura. I was openly vocal and opposed to our invasion of Iraq. I'll say it right now today. Truly, what's different, what we did in Iraq and what Russia did in Ukraine? Both invasions were based upon lies. Right. And both invasions were done to overthrow the government of that country. We were successful. The Russians haven't been. Right. Okay. Now, let's go back. 
I, I was vocally opposed to the invasion of Iraq vehemently. They're putting my show together. I said, I want to do this show from the Midwest. All we do is get the East Coast, West Coast. We don't hear from the heart of America. This show, I had to pull. I said, this show is going to be done in the Midwest. Let's hear from the Midwest, where the, the, the real America is, in my opinion. And uh, they agreed. We're putting the whole show together, and all of a sudden we get a phone call. One of my subordinates who worked with me at the Capitol when I was governor, here's how the call went. Um, is it true that Jesse Ventura, it was the buildup of Iraq war is coming. It's like February, and we're going to war in March. Is it true that Jesse doesn't support the invasion of Iraq? And my subordinate says, no, he's very much opposed to it. Uh, they said, does Connecticut know about this? meaning some big headquarters or something. Well, at that time, you got to remember, MSNBC was owned by GE, General mm. Electric, huge war contractor, going to yeah. make big money, big money on the Iraq war, waiting in the wings. They say, well, does Connecticut know about this? We don't know. Here came the big question, the third one. Is there any chance he changes his mind? Whoa. Mm. And my subordinate said, I worked with him four years at the Capitol. He said, I've seen the governor change his mind, but only when there was a subject that he was kind of ignorant on. And as he became more educated on it, he would ch he changed his opinion. But he said, this is war. He's a veteran. This has nothing to do with being a governor. He said, he's not going to change his mind. I guarantee you, he is opposed to the invasion of Iraq. Guess what? MSNBC wouldn't allow me on the air and they pulled Phil Donahue. Wow. Nobody at that time was allowed to speak out against the invasion of Iraq in our country. <laughs> wow. And I was signed to a contract. They had me handcuffed or silenced. I couldn't do any news shows and I couldn't do any cable TV because they paid me the entire three years. Wow. Wow. So and now let tell me everybody... tell you this. It was like a pro sports contract. Mm. Not 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 Joe Montana or not 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 what's uh the, the quarterback's contract, not like those, but it was a, like a solid NFL contract. Right. Wow. So now tell everybody the RT parallel, how a very okay. similar thing happens now. <laughs> okay, now I'm at RT, and of course uh I'm on there because Pretty much, I got blackballed out of our, our out of our industry. No one will hire me. No one wants to talk to me because I I bring up subjects they don't want to talk about, and mm. I bring up positions they don't want the public to hear or see about. So uh, I start doing a podcast called Off the Grid because I now with my money that I got from MSNBC, I bought a beautiful home in Mexico off the grid. And, you know, down in Mexico, you name your houses. It's Casa whatever. I mm -hmm. came within an eyelash of naming it Casa MSNBC. Because <laughs> they bought it. They did. They bought it. Well, you and, and I so both, anyway, uh, I'm down there and I started doing a pot. I'd written some books. And on a book tour, I, I did Larry King. And Larry had a podcast. And Larry was working for RT. So I started Larry King's podcast, hired me to do a show called Off the Grid, 
where mm-hmm. I did it down in the bottom of Mexico, off the grid, and I do Larry's podcast off the grid. Well, RT picked it up and started showing it on Russian television. Well, then I got in. Larry changed management, and like everything, when new management comes in, you guys, if you've been in the industry, know this. They don't like to keep none of the old talent. Mm-hmm. They like to have their talent. So naturally, a beef occurred on my deal with Larry, and they wouldn't, I won't go into that, but anyway, it got that RT came along and said, well, if you're not going to work for them, we'll pick you up. We want you. So I then signed with RT, and my son was already there working. My son had already started working there. So I joined my son at RT, and what I found interesting about that, you remember when Larry King died? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. You remember all the great tributes to him? Yeah. Do you notice how none of the tributes mentioned that for five years he was on RT after he left CNN? Mm. Right. They wouldn't say that. They didn't want the public to know that RT existed. And Larry had come out and said RT was the most honest news out there today. Mm. And coming from an icon like Larry King... Why do you think our media never mentioned once that for five years they had Larry dying after he left CNN? Basically, they didn't say that he had been at RT for five years, Russian television, along with Ed Schultz, myself and Rick Sanchez and various other personalities who are sick of U.S. media or got blackballed out of it. And and so when Hedges, Abby Martin... When, sure. Uh, when so when our, our, I was on RT all the way till the war. And then when, when Russia invaded Ukraine, right. uh, Russia didn't take me off the air, even though the last show I stopped it down and lifted my finger up and spoke directly to the Russian people, stop this invasion and the war. I don't support any country invading another country. I'm sick of it. I've lived through it since the colonial war of Vietnam. And, and uh, I don't know if that aired in Russia or not, but all I know is our sanctions caused me to go off the air in Russia. It wasn't the Russians. It was us that took me off. I don't think it was done intentionally. You know, we're not going to do this to get Jesse Ventura off the air. But, it, but the results of it, because RT couldn't use the banks and all like direct TV and all that took us down and wouldn't show us. What do you think that said? Do you think that that marks a shift in the U.S. towards more censorship and more fear of letting the wrong thoughts get out there or the wrong commentary get out there? Or do you think that this is consistent with how the U.S. has behaved in the past? I I wouldn't even say wrong thoughts. I think that's the wrong word or the wrong phrase. Alternative thoughts. They aren't necessarily wrong or right. But I think that, yeah, there's censorship, absolutely. Especially what happened to me and Phil Donahue on the buildup of the Iraq war. Are you kidding? There wasn't one person on television offering opposition to us invading Iraq. And it was based completely on lies. Weapons of mass destruction, ties to Al-Qaeda. None of it was true. And then you hear these stories, oh, Iraq people wanted us to come in. I even heard What's-Her-Name say that, the progressive... uh, I forget who on, on free speech talked about it. Uh, the girl on in the afternoon who I normally 
like to listen to occasionally. I can't think of her name right now. But anyway, she even falls for it. Saying, well, Iraq wanted us to come in. Oh, really? Roadside mm-hmm. bombs are how you get welcomed? And then she talked about, yeah, and they tore down the statue of Saddam. Come on, that was a CIA op, photo <laughs> op done to sell the program. They wanted it to look like Iraq wanted us to come in. And like right now, the other day I heard about that bomb that went off on our base in Syria. I ask you to. Syria doesn't want us in their country. Why do we have a military base inside the country of Syria? Oil, baby. Well, wait a minute. Oh, I know that. But what gives us that right? No, we don't have it. I mean, imagine what would we do if Venezuela, they got a lot of money from oil. What if they said, we're going to put a Venezuelan military base out in the deserts of Nevada? You think we'd let them? No. Of course not. So what gives, Syria's already told us they don't want us there. What gives us the right to have a base inside that sovereign nation? And you're a veteran. You have the chops to say that, whereas I'm just a douchebag on YouTube. (laughs) No, you have the right too. (laughs) True. You know why you have the right? I'll tell you why you have the right. You want it? You pay taxes, don't you? I do, yes. Then you have a right to know what your taxes are being spent on. End of story. From your lips to God's ears. I like that. Um, Well, I'm just relaying the truth. So if you're a tax paying citizen, you have every right to know where every dollar of your taxes are being spent. So not to 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 abruptly change the conversation, but sure. I do want to get into your wrestling uh, career and how that started. And so I, I've <laughs> Couldn't heard singer dance. I've heard it's sort you know, the wrestling world <laughs> is sort of like a frat. And then there were also, you know, you ran into some issues where they were taking advantage of you. Can you talk a little bit about that and what it's like behind the scenes? Well, wrestling, you have to remember, if you go back to early wrestling and going back bef- the days before even I got into it, because it did happen long before me, uh, it came out of the carnivals. Mm. You know, wrestling evolved out of the carnivals. The carnivals would travel throughout the country, county to county, and they usually had a pretty tough shooter who'd take on the local tough guy and tie him in a knot, and they'd make plenty of money. <laughs> you know, beating up the local tough guy. You know? and, uh, and so what happened then in wrestling evolved into 26 regional territories where there were promoters in 26 regions around the country and they all had their own regionalized television. So your career would be staying in territories till you ran out of popularity or unpopularity as it might be. Well, then you had 24 other choices to take. And so you could travel around the country wrestling territory to territory and in front of the new territory you were a new talent so you could last there for a few years well then in the mid 80s along came cable television and vince mcmahon jr took over from his father who was the promoter of the largest territory new york boston and the eastern seaboard and vince had no allegiance to these old promoters And so he decided to start a war and use cable television and go across the country. And he went out to all the different territories and handpicked basically and stole some of their top talent so that when he came in, there were talent the people knew. And like from Minneapolis, the AWA, you got Hulk Hogan, 
Jesse the Body Ventura, Mean Gene Okerlund, the announcer, uh, uh, Bobby the Brain Heenan. Mm -hmm. You know, he, he gave us a better deal, basically. Right. And the old promoters, Vince had a new view of wrestling. And at that point of my career, I'd been wrestling nearly 10 years, nine, eight or nine years. I was ready to take the chance because I thought if this fails, I'll retire anyway. And so I made the jump and it didn't fail. And of course, we went national. And in the 80s, we hit so big. Whoever thought Hulk Hogan would be on the cover of Sports Illustrated? <laughs> Whoever thought we'd be on NBC Saturday night's main event rotating with Saturday Night Live and beating them in the ratings? Did you know one year they opened Saturday Night Live opened with Madonna as the guest host and she was red hot. This was when she was at the pinnacle of her career. We came on a week later and we were building up to the WrestleMania three, Andre the Giant against Hogan mm -hmm. in, in mm -hmm. Pontiac Silverdome. We blew her ratings out of the water. You know what share we had? 33%. Wow. One out of well, three TVs in America was watching Saturday it. Night Live that I night. I believe it because and then we I went haven't on. seen Madonna, but I have seen that match, Andre the Giant and Hulk Hogan. Yeah. <laughs> that wasn't even the best match. The best match was Macho Man Randy Savage and Ricky Steamboat that mm. night. But anyway, we went on to the Pontiac Silverdome. We then broke the record of the Rolling Stones. Wow. The Rolling Stones had the record for the largest indoor crowd. It was 89,000 at the Ponte or at the uh, uh, Superdome in New Orleans. We drew, not, I think it was 92,000 at the Pontiac Silverdome because we could fill up the football field too. And, uh, and uh, uh, so we actually broke the indoor attendance record of the Rolling Stones at that time. Mm, that's that's how popular wrestling was and how big it exploded in the middle eighties, you know? And then of course it led to a lot of tremendous careers afterward. I mean, Hogan's the biggest, most famous wrestler of all time. Andre of course was at the end of his career. Then I certainly got opportunities that I wouldn't have had, you know, both in doing predator and going on to other things. Uh, plenty of people look at what it did for the rock. Mm -hmm. you know? I mean, he's one of the biggest stars in Hollywood today, you know, bar none. You know, he's gone beyond what anybody, any wrestler's ever gone in the acting world. You know, he's got his own production companies. He's he's now the producer of stuff. He's the boss. <laughs> yep. So, well, and, Jesse, and, and, and put it this way, The Rock don't need Vince no more. <laughs> Certainly not. Yeah, well, many of Jesse, us did, but it afforded us all a great opportunities because of, you know, wrestling going national like that. And when something is, when, when something goes national, if you're on the ground floor with it, you ride the wave. Absolutely. And well, the, um, the wave I, will usually take you to a good spot. I watched uh, WWF growing up. You know, when I was in elementary school, it was kind of at the peak of WWF. I knew you more during your phase as a commentator. Sure. But I know you you like playing the heel. And even as a commentator, you would kind of, you know, pump up the the villains um, and sort of found that more interesting. What was it about the the villainous characters that you liked in wrestling? That had nothing to do with it. I was a villain. 
<laughs> and what you're getting at is this. When Vin, I had gotten hurt the night before I was supposed to wrestle Hogan for the world title in Los Angeles and go all around with him. It cost me I, who knows how much money. Well, I was struck down in San Diego with pulmonary emboli, blood clots oh. in the lungs. I was at the Sharp Cabrillo Hospital for seven days in intensive care. I was hooked up to a monitor. It was so bad that my wife had to fly from Minneapolis to San Diego because it looked like I was going to die. Mm. Well, I didn't, fortunately, but it did stop my wrestling career temporarily. And I did come back subsequently and wrestle again. But during that time that I was out, uh, Vince McMahon came up with a brilliant idea. He called me at home and he said, Jesse, before you come back and before you can physically get back in the ring again, he said, do you think you could do color commentating on the mic? Because he knew I was a talker. And I, and I said to him, absolutely, I could do it, Vince. He said, and it was Vince. Let's give his credit. Vince goes, I've got an idea. He said, never before in wrestling has there been a villain on the microphone, somebody who will side with the bad guys. Never. It's never been done. The announcers are always mom, apple pie, and the girl back home. They're siding with the good guy. <laughs> Vince goes, I want to try something new. I want to put you on and I want, and the, the, okay, I got there the first time going to do it. And here's what Vince told me before I went out on the mic. He said, Jesse, here's your thought process. Here's how I want you to operate. He said, very simple premise. If you believe it, then it's true. Mm. And I sat a moment and thought, oh, my God, he's giving me carte blanche. He's telling me, turn it loose. Now, other than violating an FCC regulation, Vince just took the handcuffs off. And so I went out there and started siding with the bad guys. I started explaining to the public how intelligent you had to be because in my day, there were rules. The thing wrong with wrestling today, there's no rules. You can't break a rule today because there are none. Mm. But in my day, if you threw someone out over the top rope, that was disqualification. If you pulled somebody's hair, that was against rules. Well, what I did, I showed how talented the villains were hiding that from the referee and able to get away with it. And pretty <laughs> soon the fans are going... He's right. He's right. <laughs> and I'll say this. If you, want, if you want to know my influence, and I'll give a plug here. Tito Santana has written a great book. I, he gave it to me last spring. I read it. and There's a part I was on the floor laughing so hard about me. And the book is called Don't Call Me Chico. Hmm. And that's a title for me because I'm the one who kept calling him Chico Santana instead of Tito. <laughs> that was my thing, to mispronounce people's names on purpose to show they're irrelevant. They don't mean but you nothing. Know what? Chico Santana, Tito Santana, what difference does it make? You know See, what's that's funny how I'd be on that. the mic. It's well, funny you say that because I feel like that's something that 
Trump intentionally does too. He'll sure he does. He got things. it from wrestling. Right. So I wanted to ask you, because there's all, all this commentary. I think Taibbi might have been, Matt Taibbi might have been the first person who really sort of laid this out. What Trump learned from his involvement with wrestling and from Vince McMahon and from Kayfabe. I'd love to hear your sort of assessment of what he drew from the professional wrestling world that has been so effective for him, sadly, as a politician. Yeah. You already know it. He learned from them exactly what Vince told me. If you believe it, then it's true. Mm. And that's exactly what Trump's operating on. He says it, he believes it, so therefore it's true, and he don't give a shit what the real truth is. Mm. He's portraying himself as a WWE wrestling villain. Plain and simple. That wow. and, and I, I objected at first of him ever going in the Hall of Fame. I said, what did he ever do? Show, gave us two buildings to wrestle in and did one angle with Vince once and that gets him the Hall of Fame? But now after watching him operate as president and what he's doing now, I think he fully deserves to be in the Wrestling Hall of Fame because he's governing our country the identical way a villain would handle wrestling. And what makes a villain effective? Uh, able to reach the people, able to hit their passions, able to instill The triggering them. the libs, for example. What's that? Triggering the libs, for example, owning the libs. Well, and, and, people and, 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 and angry, him, riled well, up. And for him, the far right. When I won when I won my election in 98, Donald Trump came to visit me. He flew in on a jet to meet me. Hmm. And you know what? Hmm. He was pro-choice then. Hmm. Then in 20 years, he became adamant pro-life. Why? Because that's what Donald Trump needed. Donald, it became very clear to me very early on. Donald Trump does everything for Donald Trump. Hmm. Wow. End of story. So when he says he's doing it for us or doing it, he's not at all. It's got to do with what is best for him. Because so I've seen him change his spots in a mere 20 years. He went from supporting Democrats financially too. To now he's the ultimate right wing and he found the Lord. You're gonna and, and and they've embraced him. Here's one I always liked. Now, what would the right have said about Barack Obama if Barack Obama would have had children from three different wives? What do you think the right would have said about him if he'd have ran for president? and had fathered children from three different wives. And yet the ultra-right religious right just embraces Trump like he's the long-lost soul who's found Jesus after, after violating every religious code in his whole life. I mean, when Donald Trump holds up a Bible, it's laughable. It's like me holding one up, and I'm, and I'm admitted I'm agnostic atheist. Mm. Same here. Same here, you know, brother. But I admit it. I'm not going to yeah. hold the Bible up and tell people that, yeah, I live by this book. So, Jesse, let's talk about the the Reform Party, because you brought up Trump there. When you became governor of Minnesota, you ran as a Reform Party candidate. And then once you were in there, you switched to the Independence Party because. No. Of... No. OK, please. Uh, explain. I was the in... we were the Independence Party first. OK. 
we were always that. And then when Ross Perot came along with the Reform Party, we made the mistake of figuring he'd help us. Mm. And then we got the opposite. The minute I won, they hated us because I took all the steam from Perot. Oh, <laughs> wow. Oh, no. We Petty. found out clearly that that wasn't a third party movement. It was a Ross Perot movement huh. because he didn't help us a bit at all. And in fact, they said things. I did a Playboy interview and they railed me for it. You know, when I did the Playboy interview, yeah, I make mistakes because I made the mistake of thinking, well, this is for Playboy. So Playboy readers will read it. And I didn't realize they were going to take things and put it on the mainstream media front page, hmm. which would be the equivalent of taking the pictures in Playboy and putting them on the front page. And that's what they did to me. They took quotes I did that I did exclusively for Playboy because I figured I was naive. I thought, well, Playboy readers, they're, you know, they're progressive. They're, you know, they're, this won't bother them. And then they took that stuff. And because I made the mistake when I said that uh, fat people like to claim they have gland trouble, right? <laughs> if you talk to any fat person, they'll always claim gland trouble. And I made this mistake. I said, yeah, the only gland trouble they got is saliva gland trouble. <laughs> Still, which if you not don't get it, correct. it means they can't <laughs> stop we eating. Got yeah, we got <laughs> their it. saliva glands—that's <laughs> the gland trouble. Because <laughs> anyone can lose weight. All you got to do is have some self-control. Well, I don't know that it's that easy. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Do you want to know how to lose weight? How we subsidize the biggest Crystal. crop in the grocery store? Crystal, do you want to know how to lose weight? I can tell you right now, simplest, easiest, for sure method. Cocaine. No, absolutely <laughs> not. It would you help. You want to lose weight? Eat whatever you like and only, and I mean only, drink water. <laughs> if you do that, you will, you can eat. I eat pie every night. <laughs> Why? Because I only drink water. And see, in the world of bodybuilding, there was an old, here it is for you, Crystal. There was an old saying, and it said this, and this comes, Arnold will tell you this, Schwarzenegger. Get all your calories from what you eat, not what you drink. Mm. Don't get calories from liquid. Get it from food. So no so coffee you, if, for you? You're not no, a coffee you can, drinker? There's no calories in coffee. I don't drink coffee because I'm already hyper. I don't need the speed. <laughs> you don't in the morning, I don't need to pick me up. And not, not only that, for coffee, it tastes like shit. <laughs> I've, had, I've had two sips of coffee in my life and spit it out both times. First time, I had a paper route when I was uh, 14, morning paper route, we stopped at White Castle. I thought, well, I'm going to try coffee. That's what all adults drink. I ordered a cup of coffee. I took one sip, ran out the door, White Castle, and spit it in the snow. So that tastes awful. <laughs> well, well, you got to load it up with the right stuff, Jesse. Well, That's then it, it ain't coffee. Problematic. <laughs> then it ain't coffee, is it? Um, well, let then me it's ask called you about... coffee with calories. Yes. Anyway, it's called then, then in the Navy... We were yes. off and we were on eating sea rations one time. In case you don't know what that is, that's self-contained food out in the field. 
most of it coming over from World War II. <laughs> this is Vietnam. Oh, That's God. how long it's been in the cans. Oh, anyway, <laughs> anyway, we're out in the field. We're eating sea rations. And with the sea rations comes a thing of coffee. So somebody made coffee. So I gave it my second chance. I said, you know what? I took a sip if it was 14 and hated it. Now I'm 19. Let's see how it is now. So I took the coffee, took one sip, walked over, spit it out on the ground. It tasted the same, awful, and I've never had it since. There you go. Well, let me ask you this, Jesse. I listened to your interview with Andrew Yang, and of course, part of launching the uh, the yep. Forward Party. And you know, they're very interested in some democracy reforms that is that I support. Things like ranked choice voting, for example, that I think would be very beneficial and would help to make um, third party candidates more um, more viable and give uh, give the voters more choices. If you were to run for president, because you're kind of exploring that idea with him. What would the core of your platform or campaign be? Because outside of the democracy reform stuff, the forward party seems to be kind of a blank slate in terms of a political platform. Well, the core of mine will be the same core it was that when I ran for governor. And you know what that is? Tell me. What you see is what you get. (laughs) I tell it like it is. I tell the truth. And here's the core. I accepted no PAC money or no special interest money when I ran for pre- for governor. Whoop, I almost said president. <laughs> when I ran for governor, um, my first day in office, well, I'll tell you this. Do you know how much money I raised to become governor of Minnesota? 300000 Got it. You did your homework. And uh, Congratulations. And uh, I only raised $300,000 in $50 increments. Hmm. A few years ago, I said I wanted to run with Howard Stern. And everybody said, what's wrong with him? Is he crazy? No, I'm not crazy. And I'll tell you why. Howard Stern would keep my integrity. If I had Howard Stern as a running mate, how much money could Howard make in $50 donations? <laughs> a lot. Well, 50 bucks ain't going to get you in the door. You follow me? 50 bucks ain't going to get you an audience with the governor or the president. Right. So if I have a mechanism like Stern who could raise me 20 to 40 million bucks in $50 increments where I don't take any special interest money, no PAC money, and then the public of America knows Jesse Ventura is owned by nobody but himself. And I also am not owned by a political party. So what happened with the Green Party in 2020, Jesse? Because I know you were considering running and you sent a letter. They're a mess. So explain the backstory Number one, they don't want to win. Mm. Plain and they want to make a statement and they want to be recognized, but they don't truly want to win. Uh, what happened was I was looking for somebody who had ballot access. Right. I can't run unless I get ballot access. You've got to have ballot access. Then you've got to be in the debates. Get me ballot access. I'll get in the debates. I'll shame them. I get press. And they're going to be cowards for me. They're going to chicken out. You're going to elect one of these cowards who won't even face me in a debate. Well, anyway, that aside, if, if, if 
Ballot access is what I need. That's all I need. And when I went to the Green Party, they had it. But they also had a candidate named Howie Hawkins, and the Green Party was split. Now, they expected me to fix a already fractured party in a matter of a month and a half and then take on the Democrats and Republicans at the same time? Not even Jesse Ventura can do that. <laughs> and I knew that. I thought, I can't join a fractured party. And then, did you hear about the poll? When I was tantalizing with the Green Party, Fox News put a poll out with Trump, Biden, and Ventura. I got, I got 18%. Wow. Not even running. Now, you'd think that would inspire the Green Party to go, whoa, we have a candidate here that's getting 18% on Fox News and he hasn't even announced. Yeah. Do you know what I was polling when I, at the Labor Day when I won governor seven weeks before the election? 10%. Wow. And I was allowed in the debates and I won the election. If I would have, if the Greens would have supported me and I would have gotten the debates, I'm not saying I would win, but I would say I'd be a factor. What do you think are the biggest barriers for third party candidates um, the to two be able parties. to run in? The two parties are the biggest barriers. They don't want a third entity. Of course. Yeah. So and, how do well, we how do you deal with that? Crystal, let me tell you this. I can if you elect me president, I guarantee you within three years the Democrats and Republicans will be back in bed together. <laughs> they united you know, against You know Brown. how I know that? That's what happened in Minnesota. Mm. See, yeah. here's what happened in Minnesota. I had a Republican uh, House and a Democratic Senate. Well, for three years, whoever I sided with generally prevailed. If I sided with the, the, the Democrats in the Senate, they prevailed. If I sided with the Republicans in the House, they prevailed till year number three. Year number three, they got in bed together they rejected my budget. They together put forward a budget that was not fiscally responsible. I vetoed it twice, which was all I could do. They overrode my veto. I would have had to live and operate under their budget now, my second term. I fooled them. I didn't run. <laughs> so they were now stuck with this, physic, with this budget that was fiscally irresponsible. And guess what happened? I left office, the next governor came in and faced, a, I think it was a four or five billion dollar deficit because of what the two parties did trying to get me and I outsmarted them. I didn't run and they were left holding the bag and left holding what they did themselves at the expense of the Minnesota people to try to get me. And that's how it works. That's the cutthroat that goes on in politics. Believe me, wrestling is a clean industry. 
compared to politics. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jesse, you were in favor of gay rights before it was popular. You were in favor of marijuana before it was popular. Yep. You, you have an interesting heterodox mix of views because like you said about your tenure as governor, uh, you reformed property taxes. You gave everybody a check, which was part of a sales tax rebate. You built the sure. Metro Blue Line light rail. You cut income taxes for working people. You increased education funding. What would you say is the best label that describes your politics, given that you sort of have a mix of views? Uh, it's very simple, really. I'm fiscally conservative and I'm socially liberal, hmm. which means you can't fit in either party. I believe in less government. I think government's in far more places they don't belong. Like one of the things, why do we have a federal department of education? I think that should be left to the states. And if the states like Mississippi fall behind, well, that's their dumb fault. You know, would you why say do we you have a federal department of education? Would you say you support stuff like universal health care, though, for example? Absolutely. Yeah. I support this country is so rich. Every citizen should have the ability to go see a doctor if they're sick. End of story. That's the end of it right there. You should, anybody should have the ability to go in and see a doctor if you're ill. Absolutely, I support that. See, what I support is this. People fail to realize you can't be all socialist and you can't be all capitalist. We've seen examples. All capitalism, Wall Street. Remember when it fell a couple decades ago? We turned Wall Street loose and it just self-destructed. The yeah. cheating and the stealing and everything that went on. Okay, that shows you, you can't have pure capitalism. You got to check it. Okay, socialism. The Soviet Union was socialist. They collapsed. They couldn't make it. What you need is a combination of both. You come with some socialist policy, capitalist policy, and you try to determine what the best equation is for both, because if both are working properly, it lifts everyone up. Is there a country that you see as kind of a model or a president from our history that you see as sort of the ideal or as a model? You know, it's funny. I, I don't think I can answer that because I've really never looked at other countries. I suppose it's my own ignorance for not. I concentrate so much on ours, you know, and the things that go on here that I, I, I really am probably, you know, uneducated on a lot of other countries. But I certainly living in Minnesota, socialism is a high because of what Scandinavians were loaded with Swedes and Norwegians. And if you look at Sweden and Norway, they're very socialist countries, but they still have freedom, don't they? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, everyone thinks if you're socialist, you don't have freedom. That's not true. It's not true, you know, but, but you need a combination. You need to find that perfect combination. And that's what the jockey's about all the time attempting to get it. And it's going to change as time goes on. What, what, the, what, the, what they were 50 years ago may have to change a little one way or the other 50 years later. You don't know. But you don't want all of one or all of the other. Right. So Jesse, what's well, your... Uh, here's a funny thing to look at. Think of this for a moment. We're capitalists, Right. Right. 
Sure. And I yet, call us corporatist, but yeah. Yeah. And yet our capitalism is completely protected by a socialist system. Right. Yep. That, that's corporatism. No. Government spending for the corporations. No, no, no. What is the socialist system that protects our capitalism? Are you talking about like social security and Medicare and stuff? No. I'm talking about who protects our country. Oh, the military, of course. Yeah. Which is mm-hmm. complete socialism. <laughs> when you go in the military, it is total socialism. No capitalism. It's all, and I find that ironic that we have a complete socialist system in place to protect our capitalism. Because you couldn't protect the capitalism with capitalism. You can't have capitalism in the military. Mercenary (laughs) armies are not a good idea. Private mercenary armies are a terrible idea. (laughs) Not a good idea. And so uh, uh, see what I mean, though? So see, they can work hand in hand. You can use both systems and end up with a victory on both sides. Now, will it be a complete victory for either side? Of course not. But that's what politics is. If you have a complete victory, then you have a dictatorship. (laughs) So let me ask you, Jesse, um, this will be my last question for you. And then, Crystal, I don't know if you have another one. But um, what are your thoughts uh, to this point on Joe Biden's presidency? Um. I'm still intrigued and interested in how it's coming through the wash because initially he looked like he couldn't do anything and that he was stagnant and he had the disruption of the two senators that wouldn't allow anything to pass. And he looked like he was dead in the water and his presidency was going to be a four year lock for the Republicans which I still cannot imagine how anyone can vote Republican after watching January 6th. I mean, I don't know how anyone can. That was an attempted violent coup overthrow of our country. Let's call it what it was and is. Not not these goofy names they're coming up with and soft-soaping it. It was an attempted coup d'etat. And it failed. How do you, and, and here's the part that irks me as a veteran. I took an oath to pretend, protect the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. I now view Republicans as a domestic enemy. Hmm. And here's why. Did they or did they not carry a Confederate flag through my capital? They did, didn't they? Nobody apologized for it, did they? Or have they? Not one. Not one Republican has apologized for carrying a flag of the Confederacy through our nation's capital. Until they do that, the Republicans are going to find me to be a hard sell. Mm -hmm. They owe me an apology personally. And none of them have did it yet. So, uh, and as far as it, you know, the whole thing goes, how people could possibly vote for a party that can cover up January 6th and pretend somehow it didn't happen. And we're supposed to vote for them because they lost an election. And, you know, there was no voter fraud 
there was, but there was election fraud. There's a difference. Voter fraud means the voters committed fraud. They didn't commit no fraud. The fraud was committed by the Republicans and Donald Trump. And it's, I don't know why there's even a question about it. You saw him setting the table for it months ahead of time. And they're doing it right now. All they say now is that, oh, if we lose, it's corrupt. So if they yeah. win, then it's a fair count. Right. If they lose, it's corrupt. Right. And I can assure you, after I won governor, we 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 did it in Minnesota. We did a hardcore Minnesota election fraud study and found out there ain't any. Hmm. There there and this last election, there wasn't enough election fraud to turn over one district in the nation. Not one. But now you got a third of the country believes because of Donald Trump that our elections are somehow tainted. And we're going to have to deal with that now. Every person that gets elected now will be tainted in office with the thought of, well, was the election real or not? Gee, can I say thank you, Donald Trump, for the legacy you're leaving us? Mm. What is it that uh, Vince McMahon told you? If you believe it, then it's true. I think that's uh, seeing that in practice on the national scale has been scary to watch indeed. Um, Jesse, thank you so much for um, spending some time with us today. Just let everybody know where they can find you, where they can follow you and what you're up to. Well, I'm on Substack now, which I love. I'm working with my son. It's called uh, Die First, Then Quit. And where that comes from, that's an old Navy SEAL slogan. If you're in first phase of training, it's on the wall. And it tells you, die first, then quit. And what that applies to me is this. What it means is I'm going to keep talking until I die. (laughs) I'll have to die first, then I'll quit. So it's a clear message that Jesse Ventura is not going to stop talking. He's going to keep exercising his First Amendment. You can get me and my son on Substack all the time. Enjoy being there because that's a place where the handcuffs are off. That's Nobody, where our podcast is as well, that's Jesse. That's right. Yep. We're there Nobody well. can control me or tell me what I can or can't say. I'm responsible for everything on there myself. I love it. And with a chance to work with my son at this point in my life, the world is good right now in many ways, even though many people think it's bad. It's not. You can always find good if you look for it out there. Everybody should do that. And so that's where you can find me now on Substack. And uh, I'm, I'm having a lot of fun doing it. And it allows me to do it both in writing, talking, and interviews. So I've got the full thing at Substack. You know, Wonderful. Of, of ha- having it all right there to do. And uh, it keeps me busy enough. And like I said, with the new internet now, you can work out of your house and I'll give one more plug for my Tesla. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I want you to know that I, I, I sold my two Porsches. Wow. And I'm a Porsche guy. It was I have had four of them. And I thought I'd miss them. Not a bit. You know <laughs> wow. why I don't, you know why I don't miss statement. them? Two reasons I don't miss them. First reason, every time I drive by the gas station, Porsches take premium. Five bucks a gallon. (laughs) That I don't miss. Mm -hmm. And the second thing I don't miss, I can beat. The day I got my Tesla, the young kid shook my hand and he said, 
you now own the fastest car on the planet. <laughs> wow. Very cool. Jesse, and thanks so much true. for joining us, man. You're a Have you driven one? Uh, I've been in one. I haven't driven one. Has he jumped mm-hmm. on Same. it? Did he jump on it? Did Sagar jump on it? Yeah, I think so. Did you see how fast <laughs> it is? No. He likes to test the limits. Do, do you know, bit, do you know what they told me? They said, if you're going to jump on it, they said, make sure your head is against the seat. Oh, because wow. it, can, it can give you whiplash. Yeah, I don't need all that. It can snap your head so fast you'll get whiplash. <laughs> I don't need all that. I just yeah. need to get the kids to soccer practice. The last time I had down. that type of thing, I was jumping off the rear end of a PT boat doing 40 knots into the rooster tail. And you, oh my hold, God. and you had to hold the back of your head because when you hit the water, it would snap you so hard. And that those were the old frogman days. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think I think that was, we, you and they I decided might be to try something called high speed cast and recovery. <laughs> it was fun today, and if you'll have me back, I'd love to do it again. We'd Our love pleasure. to. Thank you for and your so time. Maybe as we get care. closer to the elections. Oh, that'd we'll be do. fun. Yeah. Wonderful. Very good. All right, my friend. Be well. Have a great one. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. All right, everybody. That was Jesse Ventura. He is, uh, he truly is one of a kind. This is a guy who, um, man, he's got, he's super heterodox. You know what I mean? Like he's got all these different views from all over the map. And, um, for a guy like that to actually run as a third party candidate for governor in Minnesota and win, I mean, I, that's like unheard of, you know, that is so yeah. rare. Yeah. I think it shows you just how much people do yearn for somebody that they're going to feel like isn't bought off, is just telling them what they really think about things and they don't even need them to agree with them a hundred percent of the time. It's just like, do I actually feel like you're going to actually try to do your best? There's a deep hunger for that. I mean, so much of our political system is so rigged. I asked him, like, what is the biggest barrier to a third party candidate succeeding? And he's like, the two parties. And it's like, yeah, <laughs> what do you do about that? You know, because it's kind of a chicken and an egg problem, right? If the two parties keep block you from doing anything outside of the two parties, how do you ever shake up that system to, to change things? But um, certainly a wild ride talking to him. What a life he has led. Yeah. Um, you know, he made the point though, about third party thing. He's like ballot access and debate stage. And his point was basically yeah. like, look, don't talk to me until you get there. And it's funny because I've made the same point in the context of saying the third party route is harder than taking over one of the major parties. And I yeah. get endless shit for it, but he says it and everybody's like, well, obviously and it's like, yeah, exactly. Obviously I'm saying the same shit he's saying. Why, why is it more valid when he says it and it's not valid when I say it? But that, that's the main point. The main point is if you can get the ballot access, um, then and you can get on the debate stage, then we're having a conversation, you know. But I feel like people gloss over that. And he's somebody who has won in a third party, and he says that, you know what I mean? So, but anyway, the, to your point from before, yeah, people don't like how duplicitous people seem. Like it, how in politics you always feel like there's the like Hillary said, I have my public positions and my private positions. You know, like there's the thing I put forward to the public and then there's what I really am. And with him, agree or disagree with him, he's wearing it all on his sleeve. I mean, this is a guy who's a U.S. veteran and he's also and we didn't get into this in the interview because it would have taken an hour and a half to unpack it. But he's also a 9-11 truther. 
<laughs> there's a, a veteran who's a 9-11 truther. That's like, they don't come more sincere than that. <laughs> Agree or disagree with him. You know what I'm saying? Like, they don't yeah. come more sincere than that. You don't say that shit publicly when you have a giant profile unless you really believe it. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. Well, it's funny that we have in common that we both have been uh, fired from MSNBC. But my uh, my check I got on the way out was not enough to buy a house in Mexico or anywhere else. So. <laughs> that was a crazy story. That very yeah. great. You know, it's funny because Donahue gets lots of attention for that. And that was, you and I both were very familiar. He sort of famously was fired for being against the war. But I guess Jesse, because his show hadn't really launched yet, there wasn't as much attention on the fact that he also was just entirely kept off the air. I mean, they must have paid him millions of dollars to not do a show simply because he didn't have the view that they wanted on the war. It's pretty remarkable. Yeah pretty remarkable and, and at the time you know this was at the time it was 2003 this is at the time where you know support for bush and support for the war is 80 90 percent you know mm -hmm. and so they feared they probably feared both backlash from the public but also to uh jesse's point if ge is the parent company and they're making a lot of money off of war contracts that probably played a role in it too you know what i'm saying it was just like the perfect storm of yeah absolutely let's keep out any voices that don't agree with this and I mean, and then start he's he's pushed out of mainstream press and ends up, you know, having to go to RT in order to express his views. Ironically, you know, the thing <laughs> the censorship he ends up with at Russian television isn't from the Russian state; it's again from the American state. And all the people that sold the Iraq War lies almost none of them face real accountability for it. Many of them are still in some of the most prestigious positions in all of journalism. So it just shows you if you lie in service of the proper narrative, then there's never any consequences. Even if you're just you know wrong in service of the official narrative, there's never any consequences. Yeah, yeah that's true. I will say, though, on that, the story about RT is incredible and how he denounced the war on the air. Chris, Chris Hedges did a similar thing working for RT, did a yeah. similar thing. Um, but it also is true that Russia has greatly cracked down on their media internally. Oh, no doubt about yeah, it. You, you can't yeah, give no the opinion. You can't give that opinion you, now in, in Russia. You just can't. What Noam Chomsky was, has been pointing out is you know, what the U.S. government and, and basically all the European governments have as well have done is they have censored all of the media coming out of Russia, which is really counterproductive because it's useful to know, even if it is lies, even if it is propaganda, it's useful to know what your adversary is saying and what they're thinking and what they are telling their population. And they basically made it very difficult for Americans to be able to get that viewpoint at all, to be able to assess for themselves, you know, what is it, what, how are they viewing this and how are they selling it to their public? Well, yeah, as a matter of principle, we should be able to listen to that. But to be fair, before they even censored it, I heard some of what they were saying, and it was totally psychotic. Just imagine Fox News, but in Russia and Putin. Yeah, that's exactly what yeah, it is. Yeah, I'm not insane. saying it's not. Yeah. But I'm, I know but you are. I know. It's good I know. to know. It's good to know that that's what they're selling their public on, and that that's the understanding that at least some swath of their public has of what's happening, because that helps to inform our um, our own sort of democratic process of what we should be doing in this war as well. Yeah, of course. But I mean, the Jesse story is interesting because it shows if you truly are a dissident voice and you have unorthodox take that are takes that are not part of the conventional wisdom, they do try to find their the best way to just sort of 
totally keep you out of the conversation, you know, and that's effectively what happened to him. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, so there was like but a million more. Things. We don't silence anyone here. No, <laughs> even, there when, was like a mi- even when he goes in places where it's like, eh, I don't know about that one. <laughs> he, the, the fat thing. Yeah, I saw you get yeah, visibly like, uncomfortable uh... as he was talking, as he was saying that stuff. <laughs> Look, he's Jesse Ventura. He could say whatever the hell he wants because he's Jesse Ventura. He's like the original, okay. I literally don't care what you say back to me. I'm going to say whatever comes to my mind. You he's know, like, just drink course. water. You'll lose weight. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. I mean, for the record, the thing about overweight people, no, I agree with you on that point. Like, there are some people who are so large, and if I ate everything they ate for a year, I wouldn't even touch anywhere near the weight that they are. Because genetics play a massive role in weight as well. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah, yes. there's this, there's this, go ahead. I mean, I was just going to say, I've always felt that as someone who got a fairly lucky roll of the genetic dice where like, I don't just drink water all the time and I pretty much eat whatever. And I do love to work out. I'm very physically active, but like, I know people in my life who eat way less and exercise more and like struggle with their weight. So the idea that it's just like so simple yeah, there's, I mean, there's a genetic component, there's a government policy component, there's the way our cities are structured, there's the fact that if you are poor or working class, the food that's easy and that's accessible and that's um, affordable for you is all shitty food. Anyway, there's a lot to get into there, but I, I, I mean, just, I'll put on the record that I dissent from his view that if you just drink water, you'll lose weight and it's not an issue. <laughs> I mean, th- the point, it, it is correct when people say, look, if you eat less, or eat healthier and work out, like you're going to lose some weight. That's absolutely true. But the question is, what baseline are you starting at? How much are you gonna use? To what extent do genetics play a component? And to your point, you're, you're bringing in more societal uh, parts of the conversation where it's like, well, what are we incentivizing? What's the cheapest food? What's the easiest food? Are, are there food desert? Like all that other stuff is, is yes. relevant to the conversation. But I guess my point is it's a much more nuanced view than uh, what we were able to get into here. But, you know, look, that's why that's why that's sort of why people like him. Right. He's one of the like, I believe X. And it's like, damn, he definitely believes X. (laughs) And he makes it in. (laughs) Doesn't care. Compellingly. Yeah. Well, it was um, a really fun conversation. Incredible to explore, you know, all of the things that he's done and the way that Jesse Ventura views the world as only Jesse the body Ventura could, I guess. Yes, indeed. So anyway, guys, if you like the show, um, sign up on Substack. $5 a month gets you the video of the show and it gets us you a day early. And everybody else can sign up on Substack for free and get the you know free version of the audio podcast. So we love you guys. Thanks so much for supporting us. And we'll talk to you next week. Bye.